study in the book of Ephesians. So you can go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Well, I've seen a lot of new faces this morning. If I haven't gotten around to to meet you, uh, my apologies yet. But uh, my name's Clay. I'm the college pastor here. And we've been working through Ephesians this semester. We started at the beginning of the semester and just doing an exposition through the the book. And uh, we left off midway through chapter 2, the last time we were together. So we're going to be picking back up there. And for those of you who who are here... Do you remember what Paul is doing in the first half of this letter? Let's take, it, let's take another step back, all right? Ephesians, Paul's basically laying it out in two stages, right? The first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, he's doing something. And then the back half, chapters 4 through 6, he's doing something. So, we're going we're to interact a little bit right now. What's he doing in the first three chapters? Somebody shout it out. Take a stab at it. If you're wrong, I won't embarrass you. Showing us what we have in Christ. Yep. And why is that important? Okay, yep. So it, it contrasts with our spiritual state before we were in Christ. So it helps us to see what we've been given. So why is it important that we understand, that we perceive, that we see with spiritual eyes the glory of what God has done for us in Christ? It changes the way we live. And that, the way we live, is the back half of this book. So if you think about what Paul's doing in this letter, he's writing to these churches that believed in Jesus, that God has saved, particularly Gentiles, non-Jews, and he wants them to know the great glory of what God has done for them in Christ. It's greater than they can imagine. Greater than they would ever dare to dream for themselves. And, that, and he knows that if they grasp that, if the Spirit turns the lights on in their hearts, increasingly so, then our, our, theirs and our lives will change. And Paul, in the back half of this letter, connects those dots for the, for the church. He helps us to see how what we believe impacts the way we live. So we're in the first half of this letter, kind of like right in the middle of the first half of this letter. And what he's been doing in chapter 2... Uh, which is what Matthew was saying, is he's been giving us some contrasts. So if you want to know how good something is, it's helpful to know how bad it could be, right? <laughs> so we gave the illustration a couple weeks, you know, last week, I think it was, maybe the week before. When you go out on a really dark night and the sky's clear, but it's pitch black, you see the stars a lot more brightly. And that's what Paul is doing here in chapter 2. He's helping us see the glory of what God has done for us by giving us these two contrasts. And in in the first one, Paul reminded us that before we came to Christ, we were spiritually dead. Chapter 2, 1, verse 1. We were spiritually unresponsive to God. We had no ability to come to God, to know God. We We were like spiritual cadavers. And the very reason we came to Christ is because, Paul says, that God made us alive. He regenerated us totally by His grace. He literally, out of death, raised up a new humanity for Himself. A new humanity that's now outfitted for good works, when before all we did was sin, in the sense of the faithlessness of our hearts. 
So that was contrast number one. I know it's sweet. We finished that last week. Today, as you can see on the screen, we're going to look at, at a second contrast. Contrast number two. Paul wants his readers, especially his non-Jewish readers, to remember that historically we were outsiders in what we might call a covenantal sense. Now, if this seems like it's too technical, just hang with me. We're going to unpack this, okay? We were outsiders, the Gentiles were outsiders in what we might call a covenantal sense. Not only were we spiritually dead, we were, but we were also not in Abraham's bloodline. We weren't his descendants, and as a result, we weren't originally part of God's covenant people. So in the most profound sense, we did not belong. We were foreigners. But that's all profoundly changed now that we're in Christ. Now that we're in the new covenant that he has inaugurated by his death, our our trajectory is vastly different. We now belong, again, in the most profound sense. We've been fully incorporated into God's covenant people right alongside the believing Jew. And Paul's going to show us next week in our, in our text, that, that this means we're part of God's very own household or his family. And that's the contrast we're, we're going we're gonna to see that Paul's going to unpack for us over the next two weeks. We're just calling it from foreigners to family. You could say it a lot of different ways. Outsiders to insiders. In our text today, we're going to see from far, from far off to near. But I'm trying to capture this, the whole rest of this chapter by this, this title, From Foreigners to Family. <clears throat> and this is going to be incredibly important. I mean, it's, you can say that almost about every passage, right? This is so important you know, for us to know. But it really is, because in a lot of ways, Paul is laying the foundation for our humility and our unity that we're going to see in the, in the following chapters. Unity is one of the main themes of this book and the threats to unity that are posed within the church, within our own hearts, within our lives. And this text is going to lay the foundation for that. And that's where we're going to, we're going to tie it all up today. So from foreigners to family, part one, we're going to structure our message this morning around three key questions. We're going to ask three questions, and Paul's going to answer these questions as he develops the contrast. So, question number one, and these are pretty basic, so not anything fancy. Where were we? Where were we? Now, that's an odd, an odd question, but Paul's going to use some, some spatial metaphors here. He's going to say we were far off. So look in um, chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
We'll keep reading just for a minute, a little teaser into the next section. But now in Christ Jesus, catch this, you who were once, what? Far off. That's his summary of everything he just said in, in the first two verses. You who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. But we're going to focus on this, this first question. Paul's answering, where were we? He says, we were far off. Far off. Or, if you want a little longer summary, we say like this. We as Gentiles were once separated from Christ and His covenant people. We were once separated from Christ, not just in a dead-end sin sense. We were. But in a, a covenantal sense. Separated from Christ and His covenant people. And Paul uses the little phrase, far off, to describe this. Far away from covenant promises. So just a curiosity. I don't know all your family history, but how many of you in here are fully Jewish? Don't be embarrassed if you are. Okay. 50% Jewish. Okay. Like exactly 50%. I mean, like, is it pretty close? Like, yeah. yeah, wow, cool. So we got one. How about 25%? Okay. Ish, more or less. Yeah, okay. So we have one that's right at 50%, one that's at 25%. So neither one of them meet the full 100%, okay? Um, So, in a sense, minus these two, we are all fully Gentile in this room. Okay? All fully Gentile. And and so, what Paul is going to say here is directly applicable to all of us in here. Okay? And we're going to see it's applicable to you guys, too. (laughs) It's applicable if, if we had Jews fully... Full Jews in this room, it would be it would be applicable to them of where he's where he's going with his argument. Okay, but for now, Paul wants us to remember something. Okay, he wants us to remember where we came from as Gentiles, how far off we were in a covenantal sense. So to help us get a hold of the significance of what Paul is saying here as Gentiles. Uh, by the way, I'm using this term Gentiles, eth- ethnos in Greek. It just, it's another word for the nations. That's where we get that word from. And it's any non-Jew. Okay? Any non-Jew. So in the, in the Bible's world, it's Jew and Gentiles. <laughs> uh, you're either part of the chosen people or you're not. Um, and in that sense, in, the, in an Old Covenant sense. So, so just to help us get our minds around this, we need a little background about God's promise and his choice of Israel. <clears throat> this is not going to be exhaustive, so don't worry. Rewind all the way back to Genesis 3. In the sin of Adam and Eve. Okay, So they disobeyed God, brought a curse. But that curse, in the midst of it, God also brought a promise to Eve and Adam that he would reverse the curse through one of Eve's sons, from her, one, of the, one of the descendants from her line. 
And the rest of the Bible really develops that line. But it developed initially through Seth all the way to Abraham. So they're all related in a line back to Eve. And that's the promise, the line of promise. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, if we fast forward a bit, God continued to build on the promise. The promise of the reverse of what happened at the fall. He continued to build on this promise that he made to Eve by choosing Abraham's family now to be his chosen family. And eventually he had them circumcised, the males circumcised, to demonstrate this. They're part of Abraham's family, which means they're part of God's chosen family that will be the agents, really, of blessing to the creation. And this family eventually became the nation of Israel. Most of us know that well. God reaffirmed his promise to the nation through the Mosaic Covenant, where he gave them his law. And this law further separated the Israelites from the nations by design. It promoted their holiness so that the Holy One, God Himself, Yahweh, could dwell among them, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple when they were in the land. So to be part of Israel meant that God had covenanted to you nationally. It didn't guarantee that everyone would be saved, but it means that God had covenanted to them as a nation. He calls them his sons. And listen to what Paul says of the Jews in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. So you can jot that down if you want to look at it later. Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. He says, they, the Jews, and he's talking about unbelieving Jews right here. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, is the Messiah. In that context, Paul is talking about how he has unceasing anguish in his heart for their salvation, his Jewish brothers. Because the Messiah rightfully came for them first, as the Jewish Messiah, as the Messiah of promise to them. And they were rejecting the Messiah, even in Paul's ministry. So that's Romans 9 through 11 is dealing with that big question. Like, is God still faithful? Even though the covenant people are rejecting the messenger of the covenant, the Messiah? And the answer is yes. But that's not our text. (laughs) Sorry, we got off on a side there. So just, I want you to hear how Paul describes the, the privilege, really, of Israelite people. So, back in the Old Covenant, Gentiles were excluded from the covenant people unless they, by faith, so it's not works, by faith, submitted to the stipulations of the covenant, symbolized by circumcision. And that's only if they heard about the God of Israel by coming into contact with Israel or a prophet. The Ninevites were the exception to the rule. Okay, Remember Jonah didn't want to go there? You rent the other way? Kind of the opposite of the Apostle Paul, right? Gentiles were certainly saved under the Old Covenant. And they could be saved. There were provisions even made for Gentiles who would, who would come into Israel. But that was the exception rather than, rather than the rule. Gentiles, you and I, 
were unclean. We were excluded from the temple. And as a result, we were, we were separated from being near to God in a, in a covenantal sense. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in our text this morning. He wants us to remember that. It's the only command in the first three chapters of this letter. The back half of this letter is filled with a lot of commands. But this is the only one. <laughs> remember that you are Gentiles. And so if we're continuing with our history here, out of the Old Testament, over time, a lot of hostility developed between Israel and the Gentiles. And you can imagine why. Jews had a a slang word they used to show their contempt. Okay? We don't need to adopt this as as a slang here, but the, the smoother version is uncircumcision. And you see it right here in our text. Literally, foreskin. That's the slang word. And it was used in a way to mock and in, as a form of derision. And it indicated that the Gentiles were outside of God's covenant promises. They were outside of the family of Abraham. They were outside of the covenant love of God. Or, so they thought. So, notice here, Paul reminds us, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, verse 11 called the uncircumcision, that's the word, by what is called the circumcision. That's, an, that's another word for the Jews. That's kind of they prided themselves, calling themselves the circumcision. And then Paul kind of gives a little dig, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he's not saying that circumcision is, was always bad. In fact, God commanded that. But now, something's changed. It's, it's handmade. It's, it's something that's human uh, in origin now, or it's, it's humanly, it's a way of referring to people in a human sense, not in, not in God's sense now in the New Covenant. Anyway, he doesn't correct any of that. He just says that's what you were. You were Gentile, and you were, in a sense, outside of the family of Abraham. And it's precisely at this point that Paul presses in, and he develops our plight. Yes, we were the uncircumcision, and, and that means we were separated from God and his people. And Paul provides a list of things that used, to, that used to be true of us in verse 12. And I've summarized them really into three, uh, three descriptions. Number one, we were separated from the Messiah and from God. It's pretty clear here. Beginning and ending of this list. Notice in verse 12, remember that, it, that you were at that time separated from Christ and then dropped down to the end, into verse 12 and without God in the world. So, same idea here, so I just combined them into one. Separated from the Messiah and God. This without God word is where we get the word atheist. That's not, don't read that back into this. He's just saying you didn't have access to God, not to the one true and living God. You had access to many so-called gods, but not to, not to the one true God. He also says that we were excluded from God's people and God's covenant. From God's people and God's covenant. And we could, we could flesh this out from God's promised people and promised covenant. Notice what he says here in verse 12. Middle of verse 12. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Probably a better translation would be alienated from the citizenship of Israel. I.e. we're not part of the nation. 
and were strangers to the covenants of promise. So that's a way of saying the, the covenants that God had made, the, 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 the ratifications of his relationship, there are multiple ones of those. There's uh, Noah, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic or, or Israelite covenant, Davidic covenant. I think all those covenants, plural, are what he has in mind here. But there's one promise, right? The promise of the reverse of the curse through the seed of the woman. So they are the covenants, plural, of promise. And the Gentiles, up to this point in salvation history, have been excluded from that. They were strangers. We were strangers to that. And finally, if these aren't sad enough, I think the, the, one of the saddest ones, um, most poignant, I think, to our experiences, is this last phrase where he says, we were without hope. We were without hope. Uh, this is a, a pitiful description of humanity. Paul's saying there was no true, no real, no lasting hope in the Gentile nations. They were hopeless. They're resting in false hopes, false gods with no certainty. And when your hope is gone, depression and despair set in. Life's no longer worth living. Suicide becomes more entertainable. And so we'll see in a minute, but this, this should motivate us to go to the world, this hopeless condition of the Gentiles that, they're, that the nations are currently in. And it should also motivate us to, to fight depression in our lives because we have a rock-solid hope, and Paul's going to flesh that out um, in the following verses. But my point in saying all this is, and I think Paul's point, is do you realize how big of a deal it is that you're hearing about a Jewish Messiah as a Gentile? It's a huge deal. For millennia throughout redemptive history, the nations lived and died in spiritual darkness. They died in rebellion against the one true God. Our ancestors had no access to blessings promised to Israel, no access to the covenant relationship God had established with her. And Paul doesn't want us to forget this, which is why he spends two verses detailing out for us how hopeless we once were as Gentiles. Now, I, I would venture to say that you probably don't think about this much. <laughs> At least I know I didn't. I was in college, and I, I probably wouldn't unless I was studying the Bible all the time. And I think, I was trying to think through why this is. Many of us come from a Christian heritage. Parents, grandparents, etc. And, and praise God for those, those influences. It's not a bad thing. That is a sweet thing. That you come from a heritage of, of Christian influence. And beyond that, I think our Western culture has been heavily influenced by Christianity. And as a result, I think we sometimes assume that we've always belonged. We've always been on the inside. And it's harder to imagine ourselves as outsiders, as idolatrous Gentiles. And there's good reasons, I think, that we identify with Israel when we read the Old Testament. So I'm not saying don't do that. Uh, we could talk about that. But how frequently do you identify with Egypt and Pharaoh in the enslavement? Or, or the people that got drowned in Noah's flood? Or, uh, if we fast forward... The Philistines, 
when they you know, were conquered by the Israelites with David and Goliath. Or, I mean, you fast forward it. Think about the nations. That's our heritage. Not Jewish heritage. Or that's what it once was. And I think as a result of missing this, we miss the glory of how God has now included us. That's the point. That's where Paul's going with this. The glory of the, the grandness of the promises that we are inheriting now and the blessings that he has promised to Abraham and his family. And this is another one of those areas where the Bible reshapes how we even think of our heritage. And remembering this helps, helps us to cultivate the, the much-needed humility in our, in our hearts. So, that's the first question. Where, where were we? Sorry, I didn't put that hopeless one up there, without hope. Where were we? Paul's answer is that we were far off. We were excluded from the covenant people of God. But Paul doesn't leave us here. The whole point of these verses is to develop the contrast. So that leads to our second question. Whoa. And third, apparently. I'm, uh, I'm struggling with my animations these last two weeks. Uh, where are we now? Where are we now? Verse 13. Where are we now? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul's answer, the shortened version, is that we're brought near. <clears throat> you want the longer version? God has brought us into full fellowship with himself and the covenant people. Full fellowship with himself and incorporation into the covenant people. And this single verse right here, verse 13, is the crystallized answer. Okay? So the rest of the verses in this chapter are going to flesh out this answer. So you got kind of like a crystal, you know, encapsulated answer right here that he's going to really work out the implications of in the rest of this chapter. But for now, let's briefly just take a look at what it means to be brought near by God. Paul means by this phrase, that God has chosen you and I, the Gentiles, to become part of his elect people. Remember we saw that back in chapter 1? He has chosen us, Gentiles, to become part of the chosen people, the elect people. God has brought us into full fellowship with himself. He's given us, he's brought us into the, the full experience of his covenant love. He's brought us fully into his presence. That's where this whole thing's going to blow out at the end of, the, end of this chapter. He's brought us fully, uh, or he's fully incorporated us into his covenant family. That's the idea of being brought near to God. You now belong to the family of the most glorious, most important, most lasting dynasty there ever was. There ever will be. And that's the family of God himself. Now we might think, wow, that's really great. 
I mean, that sounded kind of minimalistic. Wow, (laughs) that's glorious, you know? But, got a nagging question. What's the big deal about including Gentiles? Like, okay. Well, the Gentiles that, that God has chosen in Ephesus weren't circumcised. They eat unclean food. They eat what God commanded the Jews not to eat in the Mosaic Law. They are defiled ritually and spiritually according to the Mosaic Law. And God doesn't like defilement. Not to mention they were dead in sin. So this quandary leads us to our our, our third and final question. Okay, how do we get there? How did Gentiles, who weren't the recipients of the covenant promises, how did they become the recipients of the covenant promises? And apart from the Mosaic Law. Well, Paul's already given us a pointer to his answer in the verse we just looked at. Do you see it? We have been brought near how? Say it out loud. Yell it out. By the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. This is sacrificial language. Perfect blood has been shed. A perfect atonement has been made. A perfect cleansing has taken place all through the offering, not of an animal, but of a human being. Of God Himself in the flesh, the Messiah. The blood sacrifice points to something. To the peace. The shalom achieved by God through Christ. And that's the first way that Paul answers our question. How do we get here? Christ made peace for us. Christ made peace for us. As we read these verses where where Paul answers this question, I want you to listen for references to the death of Christ and how it got us into God's family. Paul sprinkles these references throughout these verses, and it's like he's saying this, just from a literary perspective. Listen, Gentiles. The death of Christ is is so sufficient for you. It's so sufficient. It's so sufficient to bring you into God's family, to cleanse you apart from the law, to bring you peace with God and the covenant people. So let's look at these verses 14 through 16 and and key in your ears for these references. For He, that's Christ, He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh, hear that? The dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, 
thereby killing the hostility. So did you catch all those references to the, to the death of Christ? He's saying, number one, that Christ made peace for us. He is our peace. So what is, what is peace? What is this referring to? Well, it's a big, wide theme in the Old Testament, and it's, you've probably heard it, shalom. Uh, that's, the, that's the Hebrew word. And that's the import of what's happening here. God has is, God is inaugurated the peace that will invade and pervade the whole new creation. The peace that God has always intended to give to his creation. And this peace of what we're talking about is objective peace with God. Objective. Meaning not some subjective feeling. That's not bad. But it's talking about objective peace. God was angry with you. You were his enemy. In the crosshairs of his wrath. Remember from back in the last contrast? And now peace has been made. There is a ceasefire. But not only that. His attitude towards you is not, not only just not one of wrath, but it's one of favor, of love towards you. And it's objective, meaning it's not contingent on how you feel, because it's not obtained or by you, right? It's not contingent on you. It's contingent on another, on Christ, on his death, in your place, when you weren't even seeking him, okay? So, nothing on you, all on him. And this objective peace the Spirit will often use as we believe it to bring about the tranquility of our souls that we seek, right? In the midst of the circumstances of our lives. That, that inner peace. But that's not the same thing as his objective peace. But Paul further fleshes this out. Exactly what this peace involves for us. And we don't have a chance to get into the depths of these things. So I'm just going to briefly cover them. And if you have questions, please uh, just let me know. This is a really complex passage grammatically. A lot of stuff's going on here, as you can probably tell as we were reading through it. But, but this piece involves a number of things, all right? It involves the unification of Jew and Gentile. The unification of Jew and Gentile. By the way, I'm going to go fast through these. So if you're having a hard time writing, I post all my notes online. So you can just download them if you want uh, and not worry about trying to get it all and missing other stuff. So if you write and it helps you, great. I know I'm like the backwards preacher telling you not to take notes. It's bizarre. All right, so just don't, just ignore that. Keep taking notes, all right? The unification of Jew and Gentile, that's what, that's what this peace involves. Look in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Hear that? Both, who's that? Jew and Gentile, one. Okay? He's unified us. He did that. Okay? God did that. The Jew with everybody else. Objectively. Whether you like it or not. Whether you like your neighbor or not. You're unified with them in Christ. No other option. He created it. Unity is a big deal. It was achieved by his death. And he brought about the peace. He brought about the end of the hostility, which is the next thing he says here. The destruction of the hostility. Look in the second half of this verse. 14. 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. A lot of debate about what this is talking about. I think probably the best way to understand it is that there's lots of divisions between the Jews and Gentiles according to the law of Moses. And there was a hostile attitude that had developed around those things from the Jews toward the Gentiles. Lots of reasons. And Paul is saying, now, in Christ, through the humility that's taken root in him, as we've seen, we've been dead and we've now been raised up to new life, Jews included, that have believed in Jesus. Now, there, that, Paul, that Jesus has torn that wall of hostility down. He's ended the hostility. And we see this even today, you know, when, when nations who are at war, people come to Christ on both sides and they're in the same church. You hear about that? We don't often sense that as much here in the United States, but you hear about that. Uh, in other places. And they, they're, the hostility is torn down by the death of Jesus. And that's the idea here. Hostility has been torn down and that's a, that's a fleshing out of this peace that Christ has achieved for the church. So hostile attitudes have got to go in the church. Can't maintain them. Alright? Or you're fighting Jesus. And you're going against what the death of Christ has accomplished for the church. All right? Number three, the, abolish, the abolishment of the law. The abolishment of the law. Verse 15. This peace has achieved the abolishment of the law. So he, he's broken down this, hostil, this dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So, this is just graphic language. I think Paul is using graphic language here about abolishment, destruction, tearing down, so he can build something else up. Paul's not, he's not saying that the law is evil or anything like that. You could look at other places where you see the law is righteous and holy and good. But he is, he's bringing it to an end. Meaning that in the death of Jesus... All of the transgressions against the law of Moses were punished in the Messiah. All of them, for Israel and everybody else. All of them were poured out, all the wrath of God for the transgressions of the covenant, the old covenant, were poured out on Jesus. When God raised him from the dead, it vindicated him, so he could now pour out his spirit on his people and enact a new covenant. One that was characterized by complete, total forgiveness of sins and the writing of the law on the hearts of his people. So, the Mosaic law has been abrogated, fulfilled, abolished in this sense. We are no longer under the Mosaic law. We're under the law of Christ, which is in continuity with the Mosaic law. So, we're not, we're not getting into the relationship right now between the law of the Old Testament and today. Okay, It's too big, too, much, too big of a fish to fry. Or a pig to eat. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Back to the text. All right. So Christ abolished the law. That's part of the peace, right? Part of the peace that we have. The creation of a new humanity is what's flowing out of all of this. And again, it's the outflow. It's kind of just think of it as a river flowing out of the peace that we have. So he, he brought the law to an abolishment. Why? 
verse 15, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This is new humanity language. God's goal from Genesis 1 through 3. A new humanity unified in Jesus. So, if you're aware of some categories here, theology students, on the one side of the spectrum, you've got people who say that the church is totally distinct from Israel. Okay? Over here. Well, yes and no. According to this text, one new man. On the other side, you people who say that the church has now replaced Israel. Well, no. The one new man, right? Like, there's something that is greater and glorious happening with believing Jew and believing Gentile that are being fused together into a one new man that is, yes, in continuity with the promises that God has made to Israel. Okay? So we've got to be careful about our language here. It's one new man of Jew and Gentile, and that is the church. It's not an exclusively Gentile thing. It's one new man, a new humanity that God is aiming at, has been aiming at since creation. And ethnic Israel, just to be clear on this, is partially hardened now, according to Romans 11, will be brought back in fully as a nation at the end and will be part of this new humanity just like God promised for Israel in the Old Covenant. Again, more on that. But right now, what I want you to see is what what God is doing in the death of Jesus is the creation of a new humanity, and that is the outflow of the peace that Christ has achieved by his death. And finally, this peace has achieved reconciliation. Reconciliation. Not just with your neighbor, but with God himself. And this is incredible here. He abolished the law so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. When Jesus was murdered on the cross, when he was killed, God was killing his hostility toward you. That's what this verse is saying. That's wild, isn't it? Full reconciliation. Independent of anything on you. Through Jesus. That's what this piece is afforded to us. So, man, a lot more we can talk about there. He not only made peace, just going just gonna to touch, touch on this, he proclaimed peace also to us. He got the message of peace to us. And and Jesus did that. That's what Paul says here. Look in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you. Who came? He, singular. Jesus came. The Messiah came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Ephesians who were far off, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Did Jesus go to Ephesus? 
Yes, so no. He went to Ephesus through the apostles, through the gospel. Not only did Christ accomplish peace, but he personally has come to you through the announcement of the gospel. You say, well, why does this physically come to me? Whoever shared the gospel with you, however you came to hear it, however you came to believe it, it was Christ himself who sent them. It was Christ himself who made his appeal to you through them. Your parents, your Sunday school teacher, your pastor, your friend. Christ's mouthpiece to you. That is incredible. Talk about personal interest and love from the Messiah toward you, Gentile. And so even today, if you haven't believed in Jesus, if you haven't yielded yourself, when I talk about believe, I'm talking about you're putting all your marbles in his basket. I'm not talking about saying a prayer and just getting your Jesus card. I'm talking about following Christ. If you haven't followed Christ by faith today, he is making his appeal to you through me, through this text right now. And it's an appeal of peace. He's done it for you. He's done it for you. Free, free to enter by faith in Christ. Avail yourself while there's time. So this is a, this is a sweet text, guys. This, this is getting at being a foreigner as a Gentile and coming around to being family to God. And we're going we're gonna to explore the rest of this. His conclusion is these final verses in the chapter. And it's like the exclamation point on this whole thing. It's where it's, where it's all headed. And so we've saved the best for, for last here. We're going to take one full week and, and deal with that exclamation point in his argument. But for now, I just want you to think through really two, two quick things we've already hit on, but just to, to bring your mind back around to them. This passage provides us with what I'm calling fuel for unshakable hope to defeat depression and despair. We are a depressed people. I mean, you would expect that of the world, but in the church. I feel it. I battle it. I'm with you. It's not all sin. Not all of the, the, the hard feelings that we feel, the weight. But a lot of it is. And a lot of it's rooted in our perceived hopelessness in our situations. But according to this passage, we have fuel for hope that yields joy, not depression, not despair, not suicidal thoughts. We are the people of the new creation. <laughs> not because of anything we've done. All because of what he's done. And so if you just let this sink in, it's really that good. Like it really is that good, that good of news. He really is going to take care of you. He's going to raise you up from the dead and enthrone you in his kingdom. And you're going to have absolutely no questions about why anything ever happened to you in this life. That really is going to happen. And that hope will confront, uproot, and dismantle depression and despair. Now, we've got to talk through that. It's not going to happen immediately. There's going to be lots of battle in there. All right? And I'll help you with that. We will help you with that as a church. But God will do it, and these are the foundations. And secondly, this passage paves the way for the pursuit to maintain the unity that Christ has created. 
It provides us the motivation to pursue and maintain this unity. We're fundamentally one in Christ. The church at Timberlake is one body in the Lord Jesus as representative of the universal church. We're part of his new humanity. We're part of God's very own family here today in your small groups, in this class. We're part of this family. And this unity is threatened on a daily basis. How? It was threatened with unresolved anger in your heart. It's threatened with hurts, resentments that get buried in your heart. Satan gains an opportunity, Paul will say, in your heart, in the church, in the temple of the living God, through unresolved anger. Whoa. How's it maintained? How do we maintain unity? Covering sin of others toward us in love. Confronting, if we need to, in gentleness. Not burying. Oh, the, threat, the threats abound. Threat. Lack of forgiveness in the body. Lack of forgiveness. Harboring bitterness. How's it maintained? Graciousness. Look like the grace you've been shown. Forgiveness, full and free, just like you've been shown. That's the, the oil that makes the car of the church run, is forgiveness. We will sin against each other. <laughs> Threat. Gossip and slander. Okay, so what happens when you don't forgive? You start hating that person. And then what, starts, what happens when you hate that person in your heart? Right? We've experienced that. And that tears down the church. That erodes the unity that Christ has achieved by his death and intends for you to maintain, and to be diligent to maintain. So how do we maintain it? Again, through forgiveness and upbuilding speech, edifying speech, speech that, that affirms and encourages another believer. There's a man, back half of this book is really good, okay, in terms of helping us work all this stuff out. I just wanted to give you a little taste to see how important these, these verses are in, in terms of, of our Christian life. So, again, from foreigners to family, part one, uh, we're going to deal with the exclamation point in the argument next week. So, I'll see you there. You're dismissed.